the last month I've been admonished by some folks about um, people not knowing who I am. And uh, I've done two things to try and remedy that. The first thing I've done is I've changed my picture on the city from me wearing a ski mask to me having a beautiful picture with my wife. And if you're not on the city, I'd encourage you to get on the city so you can see that picture. And for a whole lot more reasons, but you should be on the city. And the second thing I was told to do was told to introduce myself here. My name is John Bechtel. I'm the associate pastor. You may be wondering what that means. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the details. If you really want to know, come talk to me. But suffice it to say, I am one of the pastors here at EBF. While I'm talking, um, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand, and the ushers will get one to you as we uh, continue through uh, our sermon. You know, I mentioned that I am a pastor here, and I have the privilege of serving as an elder. And I just want to say as I start about how grateful I am to serve here, how grateful I am to serve you as people. You know, we're not a perfect place here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And and I know that I'm in the middle of of that imperfection. But I do know that we're a pretty healthy place as I talk to other pastors and I talk to uh, people in the Evangelical Free Church. We're a healthy place. And credit for that goes first to God, but then it goes to His people. And so I stand here grateful. It really is an honor and a joy to serve you guys. Well, today we're going to be finishing our series on the ethos statements, which Joel so uh, aptly alluded to earlier. And just to make sure we know what we're talking about, I'd like to give us a little history and just run through the statements really quickly. I won't do them justice, but but here's a little background. It was about 2009 when the elders were getting together, and we realized we needed to develop a new way to communicate who we were as a church. So we did a very wise thing. We started talking to a bunch of really smart people in our church. And as we talked it through, we realized that we wanted something that would be concise, that would help us um, quickly communicate our identity that might be short enough to be memorized. We wanted something that would be broad in scope, that would help us um, uh, use these, these uh, categories all across our ministries, whether it's this service, whether it's the ethos community. These are the statements we wanted. We wanted them to be flexible. We wanted to have a language that would adjust as context and cultures change. But more than that, we wanted something that would communicate who we were and where we were as a church, but we wanted also to communicate where we were going. Or another way of looking at it is we wanted to communicate who we were, but also who we want to be. Really, in essence, what we want these statements to be are self-fulfilling prophecies. We want these to be true things about us that become more true as we continue on as the life of the church. So again, I think the elders did a very wise thing, and they commissioned a team of very smart people who were also very talented, who turned out to be very, very committed, who met basically once a week for a year. And the statements above are what you uh, see what they came up with. I think they're very helpful for what we are... um, what we're trying to be. The first thing we, are, we, we, uh, we want to do is, is be anchored in humble orthodoxy. And by that, we simply mean we want to be people of the truth. And we know we find God's truth and God's word. We want to hold to the faith. We want that to be our anchor. We want the gospel and, and to, be, to be true in our lives. We want to be orthodox in how we understand that to be. But we don't ever want to use this truth as a battering ram. We don't ever want to use this truth as, as a, a means of being superior. 
We want to come alongside people who don't know the truth about who Jesus is, and we want to humbly share what God has done in our lives and what the truth about this world really is. We want to be anchored by humble orthodoxy. But then we want our texture to be missional community. By texture, think about a textile. Think about the, the strands of a, of a string that are woven together in, in a, uh, a piece of cloth. Think about that, holding that, touching that, having that, that experience. What we want to do is we want our texture to be missional community. And by that we mean we want to be a people who come together, who meet under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and who worship him. But we also want to be, be people who don't simply come together and focus inward and focus upward, but we understand that Jesus has come to this earth because he is part of God's mission to reach and redeem this world. And so as a community, as we love each other and care for each other, as we worship God, we want to be going on mission together to reach the world and do what God has called us to do. The dynamic, the reality of how we are functioning as a, ch- as a church is we're functioning as invested sojourners. And we have a bunch of sojourners in this room. We're missing a lot of folks because people are always coming in and out of our church. And while this is a practical reality, we wanted this to be a theological, we wanted to embrace the theological reality that, hey, we as, 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 fel- as believers, we are um, aliens and sojourners. We are simply passing through this world. This world is not our home. But we are still called to invest where God has planted us. And so we want to be people who understand the reality that heaven is our home, but that God has called us to a task and to, um, a, we have a job to do here. We are invested sojourners. And then our proclamation is to be a pervasive gospel. This is one of my favorite ones. What, what do we proclaim? We, pro- we proclaim a gospel that has the power to go anywhere and do anything. That's the gospel. That's the pervasive nature of it. It can go anywhere and do anything. So it can change the world. We want to believe that and we want to proclaim that. But pervasiveness of the gospel isn't simply limited to the external. It's also talking about the internal. That the gospel needs to go and we should allow it to go to all places in our, in our hearts, in our lives. And it should pervade everything. And we should be changed by it. And the final one that we're going to be talking about today is our catalyst, abiding worship. And I love that we're ending here with this series because we're going to see that this really undergirds and supports and makes possible all of these other statements. I want to step out of the message real quick and say, uh, reiterate what Pastor Jason mentioned when we started this series. This is who we want to be as a church. This is who we're saying we are as a church. We're looking for good ways to visually tie this together. If you're a visual artist, feel free to doodle. Come up with something. Help us. I want to, I'm serious. You can help us as a church by creating a, by, by creating a visual way for us to understand these uh, statements. So those are your thought statements. Let's turn our attention now to abiding worship. And I'm a pretty simple guy. At the end of the day, my, I, my identity always goes back to being an offensive guard. Just pretty simple. Go hit this person. Go do that. So here's what we're going to do. It's going to be pretty simple. We're going to talk about this statement, and we're going to break it apart into three parts. We're going to talk about the tag, this idea of catalyst. Then we're going to talk about the noun, worship. And then we're going to talk about the adjective, abiding. Sound good? 
Simple, straightforward. Well, let's jump in. Let's talk about catalysts. Now, I have to confess I'm a little nervous in a room full of chemists and biologists and material scientists to talk about catalysts, but it's what I've been given. So let's talk about catalysts. The definitions that I found that I really liked are a catalyst is a person or a thing that precipitates an event or change. It's also a substance that causes or accelerates a reaction, or it's something that causes activity. And that's what we want out of abiding ver worship. That's how we want to view it. We want it to be something that drives us. We want it to be something that brings about change. We want it to be something that accelerate, accelerates our growth. But what is this driving force behind all that we do? While this is the catalyst, we're going to say that, that what changes us is worship. So let's look at this noun and really unpack what it's talking about. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about worship, I'm sure all sorts of images come into your head. All sorts. Worship is uh, probably one of the most controversial things we can talk about in church. I don't know if you've heard on the internet right now, there's a voicemail that's floating around of this, this older uh, lady who is just lambasting. It's either a sound guy or a, a worship pastor at a church. She is just, um, she's telling him that, she, that he is immoral and he is being illegal because the, the lines um, on the soundboard are going into the red and that she is going to take action. She ends by saying, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you, but I'm giving you a week. <laughs> so so worship, worship can be very controversial in, in the life of the church, but it can also be confusing. Um, I don't know if you know this, but one of the most astute people on our staff, well, pretty much, and I'm sorry, Jason, I'm throwing you under the bus with this too, but Jason and I are not the most astute, intelligent people on the staff. We have some amazing folks on there. But, but Jeremy Keller... Uh, if you ever want to have a deep conversation about important things, Jeremy Keller is a good guy to talk to. And one of the things that he brought up to me, and I think, it's, I think he's right, he said, John, if you think about it, my, my title, Director of Worship, doesn't make sense. Why is it my job to, what does it mean to direct worship for a church? He's right. He's right. It's confusing. Is it, is it his job to make sure that we're all worshiping? Is, it, is this all that worship is? So if... if uh, you brilliant people out there come up with a better title, please let me know, and Jeremy would be much happier. Um, so it's controversial, it's confusing, but the other thing we need to remember is that worship is universal. That at the end of the day, all of us, you, me, every person who has ever lived in this world, is made for worship. It's our design. The question is, what are we worshiping? So to help us define it, let's open our Bibles, finally. And turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I'm going to do something very old school, and we are going to spend a lot of time in one verse. This is a very familiar verse, but I think it's important as we unpack what exactly we want, uh, we mean by worship here at EBF. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. Simply, you all know it well. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what is worship? Well, what do we see here? We see it's Paul appealing uh, to us, his brothers, 
by the mercies of God. But look where it starts. It really all starts with that little word, therefore. Therefore. Paul is saying, because of something, now I can appeal, I can beseech, I can exhort you to act. And as an apostle, he's making an authoritative request um, as a mediator of God's truth. He's saying, do this. Do this. And why should we do something? What does the text say? We do it by or through the mercies of God. What's happening here? That little word, therefore, is really functioning as a fulcrum for the entire book. Chapters 1 and 2, we see an indictment about what, about what we've done to deserve God's wrath as human beings. In chapters 3 through 11, they highlight the person and work of Jesus on our behalf to save us from God's wrath. But now, chapter 12, it begins to call us to write response to what God has done. For you literary types, what's happening here, Paul is changing the mood of the book. He's moving us from the indicative of what God has done to the imperative, what we, we now must do. We've seen our predicament. We've seen and experienced what God has done in showing us mercy and graciously saving us. Now, Paul says, we need to act, which leads us to a primary truth about worship. Truth number one, worship is a response to God and His Word. Worship is a response to God and His work, excuse me, His work. Well, why does this matter? Why is this an important place to start? Well, think about it. Living a life of response necessarily means that you are not the initiator, that you are not the leader, and you are not the focus. A life of worship makes God the subject of our lives. We are the object. That means we exist in reference to God and what He has done. I hope you see the implications. I, ho I hope you see, see the deal here. Who's the subject of your life? Seriously, who's the subject of your life as you sit there honestly before God right now? Because if our lives are all about us, it means that we are fundamentally non-worshippers at our core. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn about ourselves, that we can't grow as people, but what I am saying is, who are you living for? I'm talking about the overarching direction of your life. Who is it about? True worshipers respond to God and what He has done. Worship is not about you. It never has been, and it never will be. And that's what we want as a church. We want to be a people who are living in light of what God has done in the gospel and who are not the subject of their lives. But now if true worship is a response to God, it also involves some sort of action. It must involve some sort of action on our part. What type of action are we being called to? What, is it, what does the text say? We are being called to present our bodies. Now, when Paul's readers would have heard this, they would have understood that presenting a sacrifice involved securing some sort of an offering, an animal, um, some sort of a grain or something. It invo involved obtaining a proper blessing. It involved observing the proper rituals. Presenting a sacrifice didn't happen by accident. It required forethought. It required action. 
on the part of the one making the offering, which leads us to truth number two about worship. Worship is a choice. It's an act of the will. You see, you and I, we have the choice every day whether or not we're going to worship, whether or not we're going to rightly respond to who God is and what He has done. Worship is more than that. It's not simply a choice or an act, but we are called to present something. And what does Romans 12:1 say? We're called to present our bodies. Well, what does this mean? Well, we'll think about it simply. The animal who was being sacrificed, say, was an animal sacrificed. I think they, they wouldn't know this, but they were giving up more than just their bodies. They were giving their all. There was an all-out commitment uh, from that animal. They, they're, they're, they were giving their all. Or kind of a more mundane example is, well, think about a skydiver. A skydiver isn't simply offering up their body when they leap out of a plane. They're making an all-out commitment. It's they're all in. And the same thing applies for worship. You can't just sort of kind of skydive. You can't just sort of kind of worship. The same thing is true for worship, which leads us to truth number three. Worship has a cost. It means total commitment. Where does this commitment end? What does the text say? We're supposed to offer our bodies as what? A living sacrifice. A one-time sacrifice is good for one time, and then it's dead. A living sacrifice implies that it's forever, that we are continually living a life of sacrifice. So truth number four is that worship never ends. But look, Jesus doesn't, or Paul doesn't end there. He says that worship should be done in a specific way. He says our sacrifice should be holy and acceptable to God. Which leads us to truth number five about worship. Worship means following God's design and purpose. You see, we can't just worship the way we want. Cain learned that lesson the hard way. Other folks tried to amend God's designated way of worship, and you know what? It didn't end end well. If you're really interested, I'd encourage you to check out Korah in number 16. Or maybe read about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So true worship means we live out of who we really are, that we're holy, that we're set apart. That means we should think and act differently. But it also means we should live according to God's plans and purposes, that it should be acceptable to God. At its simplest, we truly worship God when we obey His commands. And this is spiritual worship. That's how Paul ends it. This is spiritual worship. And this is what we want here at EBF. We want to live in response to God, making that choice every day to count the cost, to never stop, and to follow God's design and plan to be who He has made us to be. That is what true worship is. And that's what we we want to be. That's what we want the the self-fulfilling prophecy of our church to be. Let's take a couple minutes and think about this. Let's ask ourselves some hard questions. Are you really living a life of worship before God? Consider the truths we just examined. Worship is a response to God and His work. We, we already talked about whether or not you're the subject. But maybe if, if you're not responding to God and His work 
Maybe you need to go back and hear the old, old story. See, part of recapturing our first love is remembering what our lover has done for us. Maybe you think you have all the answers. You've heard all the stories. You have all your isms and ists in a row. Maybe for some of you in here, you need to go back and become in awe again of who God is and what he has done. Or consider truth number two. Worship is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's the act of the will. Let's face it. Worship doesn't happen by accident. It takes forethought. It takes follow-through. Do some of you need to start living more intentionally towards God? Are you planning for living in response to Him? Are you taking action? I can't answer that. Only you can. And you know what you need to do. True worshipers plan for worship. Or consider truth number three. Worship has a cost. It means total commitment. Probably most of us really need to count the cost of worship. You know, for some of us in here, we may be living our lives in response to God in every way, except for those two or three little things that we're holding on to. And we don't believe the power and the pervasive nature of the gospel that it can come in and it can change us. A life of true worship means proclaiming that pervasive gospel to ourselves, letting it change anything and everything that isn't in line with God's purpose and plan. Or when we count the cost, maybe you just aren't giving God your best. Maybe someone else or something else has stolen it. The Bible has a very simple word for these called idols. And God has a very simple plan for idols. They're to be torn down. They're to be torn down in our lives. You know what they are. True worshipers practice costly worship. Or think about truth number four, that worship never, never ends. Are you coasting on past experiences or victories with God? Do you think you've, you've paid your dues? And now you can sort of coast into the, the harbor, finish up in the, the, the back stretch. True worshipers never stop worshiping. Or consider truth number five. Worship means following God's design and purposes. Are you okay with living a life of response to God on your own terms? You know, I'm following God, but it's okay if I don't fully obey Him here. I don't have to tell the truth about this, this uh, homework assignment. I don't have to, I don't have to, to love this person. You name your sin of choice. Where are you not obeying God? Because you see, true worshipers worship God on God's terms. So this is what we want. That's where we want to be at. That's where we want to be going. We want to be growing as true worshipers of God. But, but here at EBF, we don't just want to stop there. 
Because we know that ultimately true worship cannot really, it can't really occur through our own strength or our own power. We need an external uh, power source. So if we're going to live a life of right response to God, we're going to switch gears here and move towards to abiding. We need to be rightly relating to the person of God. Let me say that again. If we're going to live a life of right response to God and his works, which is worship, we need to be rightly relating to the person of God, which is abiding. So let's turn to the words of Jesus to get a better understanding of what we're talking about. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 15. Verse 1, we'll be reading 1 through 5, John chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's going on here? What, what is Jesus saying here? I don't have the time to fully unpack this section, but I want you to see what Jesus is highlighting. You see, he's in opposition to the Pharisees who are looking to the law and looking to tradition as their source of life, as their source of power, as their source of freedom. We see in this text that Jesus is the true vine of God. And God is the vine dresser. And he is the one who does the planting. And when Jesus is the vine, God can display to the whole world the results of lives that are vitally connected to Him. Well, it means something simple for us. We're branches. We have one primary focus as Christians, and that's to stay vitally connected to Christ. Well, I can almost guess your next thought if you're following along. Okay, John, tell me how to do it. Tell me how I should abide. What do I need to do to make this happen? You know where this is going, right? You can't do being. We want to know what to do, but what we're talking about here is a state of being, a state of presence. What does it look like? Because this is hard for us. It's really hard for me. I know it's really hard for us in here. What does it mean to be vitally connected in a relationship with Jesus? One of my college professors beautifully describes it in this way. I just love this. He says, the beauty of this relationship is that there's no striving, no works, no pressure to perform, no wearing of sackcloth and attention getting denials. Jesus did not say, I am the room and find the secret key and, and we'll be together. There's no spiritual elitism. No secrets to the deeper life. No complicated, burdensome, stressful, demanding discipline initiating one into an exclusive type of Christianity. We must simply recognize whose we are and where we are. In Him. 
Jesus puts it as simply as possible. You're a branch. Abide in me. What can a branch do besides abide? Our abiding is absorbing Christ, dwelling in his words, recognizing that he is with us, and enjoying the pleasure of his company. How do you feel when you hear that? (sighs) That's right. That's what he wants. That's what we need. It sounds good. It feels right. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave my mark on you. I'm going to leave my mark through you when you have a living, dependent relationship with me. Why is this so hard? I look in this room and I see producers. I see degrees and people who are pursuing degrees. And we have people who are going all over the world and who are doing great things in Jesus' name. And that is good. And that is right. And that is worship. But often, if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, we develop this subtle but dangerous shift of our focus when we move from from abiding, staying connected to Jesus, to our source, we focus on the fruitfulness, what I can produce, what I can do. And, And the best example I could think of is we become stormtroopers, Star Wars stormtroopers. And our focus, their mentality is we're going to go out and accomplish great things. And we're going to do the work on the behalf of somebody who's bigger and greater than us. But we do it all through our own means and our own strength. And really this is in direct opposition to what Jesus is saying here. He's gently reminding us that fruit produced through us reflects the work of God. It is not something we do that produces fruit. It is something that God does because of our vital connection to him. Now think think about the context here. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he tells his disciples to abide in him. You see, he's doing way more right here than just commanding his disciples to do something. He's encouraging them. He's comforting them. He's assuring them. He is saying, we are together. You're a part of me. We are united as branch and vine. And as you remain in me, it will naturally, inevitably, and spontaneously produce and reveal God's fruit in you and through you. And that's the same thing for us today. Jesus is with us, encouraging us, comforting us, assuring us. So where's your focus today? When you think about your walk with God, be honest now. Is the focus on abiding with Him or producing fruit for Him? For us to worship, we have to answer this question the right way. You know the fun part is? How do, we, how do we know if we're abiding? Here's where it gets even more fun. How do we know? What's the test for abiding? Well, we look at our fruit. What fruit are you producing? Let's do a little litmus test for, for uh, your fruit production, shall we? What type of fruit is coming through you? Is it godly? 
And what exactly is God's fruit? Now, this isn't, isn't totally exhaustive, but, but open your Bibles, and I want you to do some work here. Open your Bibles and turn back to John 15. And let's look at some fruit that should be coming out of our lives that should be a result of abiding. John 15, read verse 10 to yourself. Godly, fruitful abiding results in a fruitful obedience to Jesus' commands. Look at verse 11. Abiding in Jesus means we experience joy in Him. Look at verse 12. Abiding in Jesus means we have love for one another. Look at verse 27. Abiding in Jesus means we have a witness in the world that we are part of his mission. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? This type of fruitfulness is really what true worship is all about. We can take Romans 12.1 and apply it right here. And all that to say, if you want to be a true worshiper, it must be undergirded and empowered by true, ongoing, vital connection to Jesus. If we want to rightly respond to God and His works, we must rightly relate to the person of God. That's what we want for our church. That's what we want for ourselves. We want to be these right responders to God, empowered by right relationship with God. And we want this to drive everything we do. One final thought about abiding, worship. It should drive our mission. You see, abiding worship is not just about you, and it's not just about now. In a very famous quote, Pastor John Piper says this about worship. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. You see, abiding worship is first and foremost about God. Because he is the subject, and it is what we will be doing forever. But I want you to hear this too. Abiding worship is about others. It's about others. You see, our mission is to ever expand the worship of God right here, right now, in our own hearts and lives, but also in the lives of others on this earth and in heaven forever. And what true abiding worship does is it pushes us to reach our neighbor so that through us, as we practice abiding worship, God can create more true abiding worshipers right now and forever in heaven. That's who we want to be as a people. We want to worship in such a way that the world sees our love for, e- for God and our love for each other 
that they catch a view of his awesome works and that they too can become worshipers of God. That's what we want. That's what we want to drive us. That's what we want to be our catalyst. Abiding worship. Let's, through abiding in Jesus Christ, let's make this a real self-fulfilling prophecy for our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may this be true. May this be true of me, and may this be true of every person in here. That we abide in you. I I just pray that we can be like the Apostle Paul at the end of his life when when he was uh, talking about how he he gathered courage and he had the strength to go on. He told his protege Timothy, he said, I know whom I have believed in. Father, may we be able to say that today, and may we be able to say that in more deeper and real ways at the end of our lives, that we have known who we have believed in. That we knew who Jesus was, that we knew what he had done for us, and that we responded in obedience, and that we have done his work, not for him, but through him, for his glory, for his name's sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.